friends. Today we are going to be studying about Parshat Miketz. And before we begin, if you aren't yet, please subscribe and enable notifications so you can be in the know when we study Torah together. The Torah conveys life's lessons in a series of stories, narratives, which are historical, but the Torah is not a history book. In each of the Torah stories, there are seeds of wisdom that can be planted in the fertile soil of our own life. In each of those seeds, there is the potential for really endless possibilities and development. And Almighty God, in His infinite wisdom, encoded the necessary lessons, ideas, ideals, and guidance that each and every one of us, regardless of where and in which time in history we live, will be able to find the light we're looking for. Parshas Miketz is a rather extraordinary Torah portion. It opens with Yosef being a lowly jailbird, a person who has languished in a subterranean dungeon for 12 years. Stolen from his family, his high birth and extraordinary spiritual qualities totally ignored in this new land and country. And suddenly, Yosef is pulled out of the ground and in a matter of hours experiences what is probably the world's quickest rise, meteoric rise, from the depths of the dungeon to becoming the second most powerful man in the world. Egypt at the time is what we would call in the Hebraic tradition a malucha adira, in modern English, a superpower, certainly in the Middle East. I can't tell you that the Ming Dynasty wasn't powerful at the time, or whoever it was in the Far East, but certainly in the Middle East, where an enormous amount of the world's then humanity lived, Egypt is a superpower. And Yosef becomes the second most powerful man in the world in a matter of hours. Literally, hours after being dragged out of a dungeon, Yosef is riding Air Force Two. And the dreams that Yosef interprets set in motion a series of events that will position Egypt to become the source of nourishment for the entire wide, wider region, all of North Africa, all of the Mediterranean basin, certainly Mesopotamia, are beating a path down to Egypt, seeking sustenance during what is, if not global, a regional drought and economic collapse. And there's simply no food. Yosef, he has the keys to life. He's got food, nourishment. He can enable you to live. If he doesn't help, you die. Into this fray come Yaakov's children sent by Jacob himself 
to procure provisions. Yosef has been waiting for them. And he puts them through a series of torturous events, accusing them of espionage and seeking to undermine the national security of his country. Yosef then kidnaps one of the brothers, the one who threw him into that pit originally, as to separate him from Levi and the rest, and eventually does send them home with abundant provisions. But he's got a plan. And you can see it because Yosef puts the payment back into the burlap sacks of provisions. And when they open their rucksacks, they find the money they paid and they know something is off. Yosef wants to see their baby brother. You bring Benjamin or don't come back. He's made it very clear. Yaakov refuses to hear of it, and so the family languishes in their hunger. And finally, in what would become their dying throes, because there simply is no other way to keep body and soul together, Yosef is now going to see Binyamin. The brothers are allowed by Yaakov. Elaborate preparations are engaged in, and they descend down into Mitzrayim. And here Yosef launches a series of of many events, including inviting them to a special meal and doing strange things, odd behaviors, like seeming to divine with a goblet, a silver goblet that he has, rewarding Binyamin and nurturing what seems to be a special relationship. And then he sends them off. Their payment is once again in rucksack. This time, however, it's that proverbial magic goblet that's been planted as well in the rucksack of Binyamin. And I will pick it up inside in the Torah, where in Pedic or Kapitel Mem Dalad, chapter 44 of Genesis, the Torah tells us, Habayker Oir, with the first light of the morning, Vahanoshim Shulchu. These men were sent on their way, Hema, Vachamirehim, they and their donkeys. When the brothers had previously left Egypt, they have taken Shimon's donkey with them, as well as his rucksack. Now, Shimon leaves on foot, and they are mounted. He's also empty handed, but he does intend to buy a donkey en route. This all slows them down. And so they really hadn't gone very far when immediately, just Yatsu Eshair, Loihirchiku, remember, you had somebody walking, not riding an animal. The Yosef Amar, Yosef says, Kum Anoshim, set out, pursue those men. When you catch up with them, you will say, and he wrote the lines. Why have you repaid good with evil? And when they look quizzically at you, you will say, After all, this is the goblet which my master drinks from. And, 
It's also the thing he uses to divine. Harayesim asherasisim. What you have done, it's a very bad, very evil thing. You've stolen our master's prized possession. Verse 6 tells us, Vayasigim, they did catch up with them, and they conveyed Yosef's words. And at this point, I want to zero in on the actual words of the Torah. Because today's class, I am slave, will be about the way Yosef wants to detain Binyamin, which leads us into next week's Parsha, where suddenly the brothers will be up in arms. You can't do that. And yet, despite the fact that they seem to refuse to accept the possibility that Binyamin would be detained and in fact taken into slavery, it was their idea to begin with. Take a look in your Chumash if you're following along inside or listen carefully. Vayemru a love. They said to him, Lama yidaber adoni kadvorim ho'ela? Sir, why do you say such things? Cholila la'avodecha. It would be a disgrace. The word cholila is related to the word chol or mundane, like an infradig beneath our dignity. We would never do something like that. Kadavrazeh. Heaven forfend that we would do something like this. Hain, what's the proof? You know, when somebody says, trust me, I get nervous. Or believe me, believe you. If you have to tell me to believe you, it's almost a red flag that says, don't believe a word this guy is saying. Why should they believe or accept their logic? It's a disgrace for us to do something like that. Really? Why, because you were caught? <laughs> they tell a story that in the fame Slabotki Yeshiva, and I know this is true, because my great-grandfather studied in that yeshiva and left that yeshiva for precisely the reason I'm going to share with you. The scholarship was tremendous. But very sadly, along with tr great scholarship in the beginning of the 20th century, there also came an enormous amount of frigidity towards Torah observance. So much so that in the end of the 19th century, it was, it was said that there was students, very scholarly people, who would violate the Shabbat, who would smoke on Shabbat. And I know my, my grandfather told me, he heard from his father, that he left Slabotka, the famed Lithuanian yeshiva, together with the Rosha yeshiva, whose name was Rebaruch Ber Leibovich. Rebaruch Ber took a minion of Bokhrim, ten boys, handpicked, of boys whom he knew were scholarly and pious. And he moved to a different town. The town was called Kamenetz. And here in Kamenetz, he opened a new yeshiva. I know this because my elder Zaidi, my father's father's father, was amongst those ten students. For example, the famed Chaim Nachben Bialik was a disciple of Slabatka. Although he's revered in secular Zionist circles, let me just say that Rebaruch Ber was not proud of his disciple. 
And he was very offended by the path he had chosen. Those are all facts. But at any rate, here's a little joke which fits into, I guess you call it, historical fiction. So the story goes that the Rosh Hashiva entered a room on Shabbat Kodesh, on the Holy Shabbat, and he found three boys all smoking on Shabbos. And he went crazy, lost his mind. He began to yell, Shabbos, Shabbos, how could it be that you're doing something like this on Shabbos? And the first boy said, Ichob Fargesen. I forgot. Irat Fargesen, he says, you forgot? What did you forget? He said, I forgot it was the Holy Shabbat. And the Rosh Hashiva said, Ay, Shabbos. To forget it's Shabbos. Okay, he says, okay, okay. I guess forgetfulness is a, a part of the human condition. I guess anybody can forget. They turns around the next boy. And you and you? Smoking on Shabbos? And the boy said, Fargesen. Fargesen? Fargesen? What did you forget? He says, I was craving a cigarette. I, I forgot that one is not permitted to smoke on Shabbat. Ay, 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 the Rosh Hashiva screams. You forgot. You're not allowed. How do you forget something like that? And he tries to comfort himself. I suppose people could forget. They get caught up. He turns around to the third boy. And he said, And what did you forget? He said, I forgot to lock the door. It's a joke. I'm, I'm sure you might even be laughing at the other side. It's a sad joke. Here's my point, though. My point is, they're saying, We? We would never steal. Have you ever seen a thief who gets up and says, Oh, sure, guilty as accused. Just about every criminal who's ever been caught has proclaimed his or her innocence. Why should the armed forces who have overtaken this group of travelers believe them? So there's a logic. There's a logic. They said, you should believe us. You should know we wouldn't do that. What's the proof? Verse 8. After all, the money we found on the top of our rucksacks, we brought it back to you. Who would have known? You wouldn't have a tracking device. Our money was put into our money. Our very bags of money, the bundles of coins. Our money was put back into our rucksack with the provisions. And we brought it back from Canaan. The same money. It wasn't an afterthought. So obviously, we're very honest people. And if so, How would you be able to even entertain the thought that we stole gold or silver from our master's home? How, how, how could you even think that? So they make a good point. It is true after all. And then, they go further. It gets really interesting here. Because they suggest the penalty. And then later refuse to accept it. But it was their suggestion. The posse that went after this group of brothers never mentioned a word of what kind of consequence might be engendered. 
never spoke about punishment, never spoke about any kind of punitive actions. They suggested. Listen to what they said. Verse 9. We're so sure none of us took it. Whichever of your servants, referring to themselves, of whom it is found, let him die. We submit to a capital punishment. And if you find that goblet with one of us, the one you find it with will die, and we will all be slaves. They said it. They stated clearly, we will all be slaves. And it's not the only time. They do this again later. Which leads us into the extraordinary question. If they themselves passed the judgment, if they themselves suggested, I am slave, well, and then how did they expect to be able to contest it later? It was their own doing. That's by their own suggestion. In fact, their suggestion was much harsher. We will come back, we will circle back to this question and tie up all the loose ends at the end of tonight's, today's class. This, with Hashem's help, I would like to assure you of. However, I want to look now more deeply at what exactly they said. And then I want to step back for a moment and have a little bit of an overview as to what might be going on over here. And after we understand what was transpiring, what was unfolding, what was Yosef's plan, then we'll be able to come back and to revisit their reaction to the accusation and ultimately have clarity as to why, though they suggested we're prepared to be slaves, when Binyamin was actually going to be detained as a slave, Yehuda lost it. So, let's talk about this suggestion they made. But first, the response of the leader of the posse. Vayoymer, the leader of the posse, the man who's been empowered to arrest these people, apprehend them, and bring them back to Egypt. He says, Gam ato Indeed, it should be as you said. Kainu, yeah, that's right. For if a stolen object is found in the possession of one member of a group, the whole group is implicated. But he said, I'm going to be lenient with you. And we'll see, this is the way Rashi explains it. I'm not going to do that. Asher the one whom I find, the goblet, who yihi ali oved, he will be the slave, the atem, and the rest of you, to Unikim. You're all going to be, so to speak, innocent. You can go free. I will only detain the one in whose possession I find the goblet. Let's take a look in Rashi. Rashi says, This is a mundane, beneath our dignity, a disgrace. Rashi goes further and he says, 
that according to the Targum, the way Unkelis renders this, chas slavodecha, as if to say, chas meyesa kadosh baruchu, heaven forfend, yehi aleinu ma'asayzeis, that we would do something like this. And there are many examples in the Talmud, and this is the first time it shows up in Rashi, something that if you're in Torah-infused circles, you must have heard this, who knows, endlessly. People say, chas v'shalom. Chas v'shalom hails from this very statement. Heaven forfend. As if to distance something from us, distance the possibility of something, rule out even a thought, a suspicion. Don't even entertain it. So they said, We after all, we after all return the money. Rashi notes this is one of This is one of the ten times in Torah we see what is known in Latin or academic circles as an a fortiori means of reasoning. Literally light and heavy. If I can lift a hundred pounds, it goes without saying I can lift fifty. I don't have to say that. It's obvious also known as elementary, my Watson. And so this is elementary. We, we steal gold and silver. You see, we're honest people. We didn't take money that was thrown into our laps. We certainly wouldn't, with baleful intent, take something from somebody, illegally steal something? Out of the question. So they said, and if we would be found like this, the one who finds it should die, the rest of us are slaves. And the leader of the posse's response, Gam Indeed. Indeed. It should be that way. However, I'll be lenient. Rashi says, Af hadin. If we are to look at things by means of the law, applying the legal principles, that's absolutely correct. Emes kidivrechem keinu. Indeed, truth has been spoken. So it is. Shekulchem chayavim bedover. You are all guilty. Asada shenimtza gneva. There is a group of ten. A stolen item is found beyad echad mehem. Kulam nitfasim. All are arraigned, apprehended. All are considered guilty. Avalani. I'm not going to do that. Not I. I'm going to be a nice guy. I'm going to go beyond the call of duty. I'm going to be more lenient than I actually should be. I'm not going to enforce the law. The one in whose possession I find the goblet, he will be a slave. And the rest, that's all. Nothing else. So here we have it. The brothers set themselves up for this. They basically suggested it's the right thing. To kind of complete this, I want to share with you what Ramban says. Ramban, Nachmanides, is bothered by Gam Ata Kidivrechem. The word Ata means now it is as you have spoken. He says, Lashain Gam Ata. It's. Uh, 
It doesn't land right. It doesn't, there's something missing. It doesn't ring right. Because Atta now indicates, as the Abu Hav says, that there's been a development. Something has happened. And as a result of the thing that happened, ah, now, now you're right. So what's the now? Ramban is not satisfied with Rashi's approach. Instead, he suggests, initially, mitchilo, hoyamashim eskulam. Initially, he accused them all. The head of the posse did not speak to an individual. He spoke to them all. He said, you're all guilty. Where do we see that? Says Rabbeinu Moshe ben Nachman, what do you mean? Look at the words of the scripture. Scripture. He says, why did you, this is plural, he's addressing all ten brothers. Why did you do this? All eleven, pardon me. You've done a terrible thing. And their response, they exonerated themselves. They said, are you kidding? The one who found it, the one in whom, with whom you find it, let them die. Who are Ganav? He's the thief. We, Anachno, Hanikim, the rest of us who are not the thief, that's fine, will be slaves. So sure were they that this was not the case. And Nachmanides reasons this. He says, if we follow Rashi's approach, which suggests that there is mass guilt applied to the entire group, in that case, he says, so why is Lama Yamus just because one of the thieves happened to actually have it in their possession? Why should he die and the others live? If they're all guilty, they should all suffer a common consequence. Either they should all die, or they should all be slaves. It doesn't make sense to suggest that there is collective guilt, and yet the punitive measures will be applied selectively. So Ramban suggests, Heim toyanim shalayodu, they are maintaining that they don't know anything about this. Well, if they don't know anything about it, why is there collective guilt? I'm on a plane. I'm on a train. Somebody in the cabin, somebody does something bad. Somebody's found smuggling narcotics. I'm guilty. Well, because I happen to sit next to them. Somebody in my group did something illegal. That implicates me? How was I supposed to know? So he says, Ramban says, they weren't going to be guilty. They didn't admit guilt. They find themselves. When the will, we too will be slaves. And that's why he said, even now. As if to say, the one 
who with whom you find, he is the thief. He is the only one who deserves to be punished. And yet, despite the fact that if you find somebody with the goblet, they deserve to be punished, now we'll all take a hit. We're all ready to be slaves. And their response of the posse is, no, no, I wouldn't do that. I will apply no collective punishment. I will only make the one who has the goblet a slave. So he's actually treating them more deferentially than they wanted to be treated, than they were ready to be treated. It's pretty clear. From Rashi's perspective, he's saying, I won't apply the law. From Ramban's perspective, he says, it's not the law and I won't accept your suggestion. Nice gesture, unnecessary. So he's being fair. The fact is the goblet does get found. Why would they expect anything less? Something about the story just doesn't make any sense. The common logic doesn't like sing off the pages. So what happened? What happened is, in verse 11 we hear of them each quickly lowering their packs to the ground and then each man opens his rucksack. And the overseer, the head of the posse, begins the search. Beginning with the eldest, only ending with the youngest. And this way, as Rashi explains, nobody should suspect that he knew exactly what he was looking for. He didn't find it in the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, or tenth rucksack. Only in the eleventh and last rucksack he sought. But if he knew what he was looking for, why wouldn't he just go straight there? Why go through the pain of checking everybody's bags? So it made it seem kind of natural. Following an order. An order of age. Youngest last. What happens? The goblet is found. It's found in Binyamin's rucksack. Their immediate response is They rend their garments. Why do they rend their garments? You know, there's a Torah tradition. It's a halacha, actually. It's a law. That when we are in mourning, we rend our garments, our actual clothing. No, not ribbons that get added on. We rend the actual garments. And this goes back thousands of years, as you can see here. The Arachayim and others explain that the reason we rend garments is because in antiquity, people would lacerate or break their skin. We don't do that. When the Torah says don't lacerate or don't rip, break the skin it says because bonim atem you are children of Hashem and the Orachayim says you're never an orphan even if you lose your parents I'm your father Hashem says you're never really orphaned Hashem is the parents of the orphans and there's this notion the Orachayim says that the flesh is temporal it's laid to rest, but the neshama is eternal. 
And by rending garments, we is only superficial. The loss is not intrinsic to our person. I don't know if this has anything to do with their rending garments, but I've often thought of it that way. They were in an awful predicament. Now, they are in the midst of realizing their worst nightmare. And yet, they were able to maintain composure, understanding they didn't gash their skins, they didn't hit themselves, they didn't harm themselves. They understood this is only on the surface. Hashem arranges everything, and they didn't lose their faith. So they rend their garments. Each person loads the donkey by himself. And this shows you that they were very strong because usually to load up things like that, you need somebody to help you. But they didn't need any help. It doesn't say they helped each other. It says they threw these enormous rucksacks filled with provisions onto the back of the donkey by themselves. Rashi says, They were powerful people. It's interesting that Rashi says that this proves they were very strong, very powerful. And Rashi makes comments like this a number of times. First time is with Yaakov. Yaakov is able to open the well and he's, he's a very strong, a very powerful individual. But interestingly, there's a Medrash Seicholtov that says that they were very angry and they were filled with fear and anxiety. And what happens then? Your adrenaline starts pumping like crazy. He doesn't use the word adrenaline, but he describes it to the T. The Medrash Sechotov says they had a doubling of strength. They had a sudden infusion of a double measure of strength for a period of time. It's exactly what we call today in the 21st century an adrenaline rush. So filled with anxiety, they had this like over almost superhuman ability, twice as strong as themselves, throw the rucksacks onto the donkeys, and they return to the city. So they returned. The brothers have a leader, his name is Yehuda. They come to the home of Yosef. He's waiting. He's anticipating their arrival. He was expecting them. They threw themselves to the ground before him. Remember that dream? Time and again now, all of Yosef's brothers prostrate themselves before him. Yosef responds to this display of seeming humility, of seeming subservience, throwing themselves to the ground. Yosef says, what is this deed that you have done? You know that a person like me doesn't get here by accident. You know that I can figure out what happens. Now the interesting thing is the term nachish and nachish is used previously as by act of divination. But Yosef seemed to indicate that he could only perform his divination when he actually had the goblet in hand. That was his magic goblet. So how is Nachesh and Nachesh if they took away the tracking device? They took away the ability for Yosef to be able to look into and see the future. 
So Rashi explains that although indeed the word nachesh and nachesh is understood oftentimes as in divining, here, he says, a person as prominent as me. You know that a person who can rise to my rank has the ability by virtue of his own intelligence to figure things out. You know I figured this out, he said. You knew I would realize. Nobody else was at the table. It had to be you. You don't even need to be Sherlock Holmes to figure this out. So now, the story is, as we say, complete. The scene is fully set. They were pursued, apprehended. The contraband is discovered. They have thrown themselves on the ground. Yosef accuses. The spotlight is on the brothers. What will they respond? How will they respond? Vayemer Yehuda. Yehuda says in verse 16, Ma noimar la'adoini. What can we say to my Lord? What can we say? Ma nedaber. How can we speak in a way that is going to be convincing to you? Ma nitzadok. How are we going to be able to prove our innocence? Ho Elohim motza es avoin avodecho. The Lord has found the evil, the sin of his servants. Now, even though it sounds like he's speaking to Yosef, and on a literal level he is speaking to Yosef, we'll see that actually there's something deeper going on here. Yehuda is saying, we know that this comes from God. We know that God has found our shortcoming, our deficiency. And as such, since God has found our deficiency, we didn't do anything, but God ordained it to be so. We're all your slaves. He doesn't suggest anybody should be killed now. He's changing his tune. But he does say we should be slaves. It's the second time. It's the second time they suggested, I am slave, they said. We are your slaves. Nah, no, no, no. Only he'll be a slave. Now they're brought before Yosef, and they say, we're all your slaves. Us and the accused thief. Yosef says, it would be a disgrace for me to do that. The man in whose possession the goblet was found, he will be a slave. And the rest of you? Go on in peace to your father. Yehuda just said, we're all your slaves. Yosef says, thanks for the offer. I'll take just the little guy. I'll be fair. I'll be beyond fair. I'm going beyond the call of duty. What happens? Are you kidding? When he hears this, Yehuda goes absolutely nuts. 
And then Yehuda approaches Yosef and he says, Listen here, let me speak to you. I want to whisper in your bend your ear a little. I know you're equal to the paro and my words are going to sound a little harsh, but you know, don't get angry at me. Do you really expect to avoid the consequences of this injustice? Do you not know, Rashi explains in the beginning of next week's Pasha, that the Pharaoh was stricken with severe plagues for detaining my grandmother Sarah for just one night? Are you kidding? You're going to behave this way? You told us to bring Benjamin here. We brought him. We're out of here. If you persist in provoking me, Yehuda said, I'll kill you and I'll kill your Pharaoh too. Hey, hey, hey. You just said we are your slaves. He said, no, no. You don't have to be all my slaves. I just want that slave. You just want one slave, not 11 slaves. Well, then we shall declare war. And then we shall not accept this. What's going on here? When they were first approached, when the posse caught up with them and said, you guys did something bad, they denied any wrongdoing. They insisted that they could logically prove their innocence. And they said, go ahead. All right. And they said, we'll all be your slaves. And if you find somebody having the goblet, you can kill him. No, no, he says. Nice offer. No. Whether you read it in Pshut Mikra, you're all guilty. Or whether you take the Ramban's approach, now you're making a nice offer. This is very, very generous of you to suggest you all be slaves. But I'm going to refuse that offer. I'm just going to take as a slave the person you just said should be killed. They come in front of Yosef. And they say the same thing again. Even though their offer was spurned last time around, this time they don't suggest that anybody be killed because they think this maniacal emperor is actually going to kill somebody. And now we know that the goblet was found. So they, they kind of forgot about that. They stopped mentioning consequences that would be fatal. But they still talked about slavery. They said, we're all going to be your slave. Yosef says, no, no, just him. And here Yehuda loses it. And he launches what would be on the surface a very dangerous attack. What in heaven is going on here, my friends? It doesn't seem to add up. So in order to answer this question, or to better appreciate it, I want to take you into what I'd like to call the backstory. Just to complete just this, this part of uh, the narrative, this of the Chizkuni, he says that earlier they said, we'll all be slaves, and the one who you find the goblet with should be killed. When they saw that Benjamin actually had the goblet, they realized it was a very bad idea to make a suggestion that Benjamin should be killed. So they just said, we stand by our word. We made the offer before. We stand by it. We'll be your slave. And he says, They were afraid. The Chizkuni says, They were actually afraid. Maybe this guy is going to decide to go ahead and to kill him. Now, the backstory goes something like this. Why did Yosef set his brothers up as such? Why did he insist that they bring Binyamin and then after Binyamin arrives 
create this elaborate ruse where he is going to detain Binyamin as his servant. So the Abarbanel goes a little further. Abarbanel asks, he says, tell me, why did Yosef have to hide the money? What's up with that part? There's like that whole red herring thing. He sends their money back the first time. When they come the second time, they bring the money back with them. When they're accused of stealing, they maintain their innocence by virtue of the fact that they had brought their money back and that their money was there again. The same story, but this time there was also a silver goblet. <laughs> What's the reason for that? What was the point? Barbanel says something unbelievable. He says this whole story was very carefully choreographed by Yosef. It was all about discovering the truth. The truth about his brothers. Are they prepared to be reunited as a family? Have they indeed and truly regretted their past misdeeds? Or are the same reasons things went south the first time still applicable now? That is the question. Kol Hanisoyin Sha'oso Yosef says Rabbeinu Don Yitzchak Abarbanel the whole business here with everything Yosef did by framing them in a series of remarkably constructed libels was all was all to see was all to see if they really were at peace and loved Binyamin because despite everything Yosef had done up until this point which seems to indicate they care about Binyamin Nishar Sofik Belibay he still has a doubt did they really love Binyamin? Did they really consider him as a blood brother? Or did they still see Binyamin as outside of their immediate circle? Did they still maintain Rashi? I mean, Barbanel uses the word hate, strong word. Did they still dislike or nurse some kind of enmity for all of B'nai Rachel. For all the children of Rachel, because after all, Leah's children were tremendously offended by Yaakov's endless affection and loyalty to Rachel Imenu. So therefore, says the Barbanel, he wants to bring Binyamin into the situation, planting the goblet in his rucksack. Lirois to see, imishtadlu lahatsiloi. Will they make every effort to save him, or not? Now here is the problem. What if Binyamin did steal the goblet? Why would he steal the goblet? It's genetic. The goblet was a means through which one could have a paranormal awareness of past and future events. Binyamin's mother, Rachel, stole the trophim, which were these little idolatrous icons 
that the Medrash tells us were made from the heads of babies miscarried. And these babies who had never lived in their shrunken tiny skulls would be fused to a plate of gold, incense would be brought, and a voice would emanate. For whatever that's worth. It was a method of proverbial divination. And you couldn't just buy these in idols or us. Because, thankfully, it's not such a common event. So now, Rachel took an object through which divination can be accomplished and achieved. Maybe Binyamin did the same thing. Maybe the brothers would say, are we responsible to risk our lives if Binyamin did something foolish? He's guilty. Why did he take it? Yosef wants to be sure that nobody can even entertain such a thought. So what does he do? Because they might say, guilty is guilty. Sinner is a sinner. Punishment is due. He says, put the money paid together with the goblet and put the money in every other single rucksack. Because what happens then? They know they didn't take their own money. So they know they're being framed. If they know they're being framed, then they know Binyamin's being framed. And just as they didn't take the money, Binyamin didn't take the money, nor did he take the goblet. That's, says the Abarbano, what's going on here. Yosef needs to know that they are in a state of perfect peace with Binyamin in order for him to be reunited with his brothers. After all, they're about to begin a very, very difficult process known as Shibud Mitzrayim. This is called the Egyptian odyssey of bondage and slavery. It's almost going to destroy the family Yaakov built if they aren't united. If they don't enter this together, there's no hope. Think about Moshe Rabbeinu when he saves a hapless and innocent Jew from being tormented and beaten from the evil taskmaster. And the next day when he sees two of his own Hebrew brothers fighting with each other and one raises his hand to throw a punch, Moshe says, what are you doing? What are you doing? Russia, he says, wicked person. Why would you strike your fellow? How did you raise a hand to commit an act of violence? And they said, oh. You're also going to play this game? You're going to kill us too? And Maisha realized he's in big trouble. They saw, they knew. They would necessarily report. They did. What does Maisha say there? She tells us, Moshe says, I have often wondered why. Why are my people so badly treated? But now when I see this kind of disunity, now when I see one brother prepared to stab another in the back, when I see a family that doesn't consider itself to be family, I understand. This is the saddest detail. 
that has appeared again and again and again in the long trajectory of Jewish history. Time and again, we are our own worst enemies. Not only is there not love amongst and between us, but Rahman al-Atzlan, we're ready to harm each other. This was how the second Beit HaMikdash was destroyed, and it's a condition we suffer from until this very day. It's called Sinat Chinam. Unearned want and hatred. Just not being able to stand somebody else. Can't stand their happiness, their success, their achievement. Endless jealousy and enmity. Tragic. Yosef needs to know that this is not the case. That that jealousy, that that enmity which led to the destruction, it seemed, of Yaakov's family, which led to the selling of Yosef into slavery, will never be the same again. That the brothers have repented. And so, what does he do? He arranges that Binyamin will be taken as a slave. He sets up the situation so there'll be no doubt that Binyamin is framed. And he says, now what are you going to do? Now, how will you behave? And the brothers, not knowing any of this, but knowing full well that they are innocent, their response is, Ho'alikim Motzo The Lord has found the shortcoming, the inequity, of his servants. What does it mean when they said, Were they admitting to guilt? If they admitted to guilt, then why would they expect anything less from Yosef? You just admitted. You said guilty as accused. About this, says Rabbeinu Bechaya. This was an act or declaration of faith. They declared Hashem is their rock and all that unfolds against them happens for a reason and a purpose. At the conclusion of a burial, there's a poignant and heartfelt prayer recited it's called Tzidukadin, as if justifying the judgment. Here, they performed an act of Tzidukadin. They didn't say, God, what are you doing this to us for? Come on, God, this is crazy. Oh my God. They didn't say that. They said, we know God. Elikim Matzah, God has found Yodainu, says Rabbeinu Bechaya, paraphrasing the Medrash, we know, we know that we are innocent of all this, but we are guilty, not of the crime we've just been accused, but of another crime, from a different time and a different place. And all of this, must have come from before God. And it is all, now God is remembering us in the sin we did.
the Medrash that Rabbeinu Bechaya bases this on in Bereshis Rabbah, chapter 92 says, and I quote, Im If will we say to you, should we say to you, we have sinned? We know we have not committed this crime. And if we say we have not committed a crime, we can't really say that. Because we have committed a crime, but not this crime. God has found the sin, the crime, the inequity of your servants. Rabbi Yitzchak, Rabbi Yitzchak intoned here the debtor has found an opportunity to demand payment. Our Mepharshim point out that they use the language Motzah, God has found, and there's a corollary. When they, the brothers, presented the anecdotal evidence to Jacob of Joseph's presumed death, they handed him that special multicolored fancy coat, ripped and bloodied, and they lied. And they said, Zot Matsanu, this is what we found. Hakerna, do you recognize it? And this teaches us that there was no question as to why they were being punished. It's 22 years. Tell me, can you say that you know exactly what you might have done wrong in 22 years? Just one thing. Things happen to us. We don't know why Hashem does what He does. We have an air of entitlement about us, thinking we deserve everything. But it's not really true. And really pious people have the spiritual fortitude and the courage to say, we brought this. We created this. This is our disaster. This is the bitter grapes or wages of sin. They were able to say with absolute certainty they knew why this happened. Because they had never done anything else that was wrong. How incredible. Elikim Matzah. We sold Joseph and then and then we feigned his death. And we said, Zeis Matzano. Zeis Matzano. Elikim Matzah. A perfect corollary. So they believe that Hashem is doing this to them. They believe that they're being punished for their own misdeeds. They're prepared to accept upon themselves the judgment of God, not Joseph. Because they know that Joseph's a charlatan. And they know that he's a liar. And they know that all of this is untrue. And they're certain of it. And know that Benjamin did nothing wrong. As they knew they themselves didn't do anything wrong. In the same way that the money that ended up in their rucksacks was a ruse. This is all a ruse. They know this is evidence that was planted. So why is this happening? It's happening because HaKadosh Baruch Hu, because Almighty God, they said, passing judgment on themselves, has decided now to demand payment for our sin. And they said, Hinnu Avadim. 
ask you a simple question, my friends. They're accepting upon themselves Hashem's judgment. They're saying, we know why this happens to us. Ultimately, it's by the hands of God. The only one who's innocent here is Binyamin. They say, we are going to be slaves. They can't say Binyamin shouldn't be a slave. That makes no sense. Because on the surface, they're admitting to a crime or accepting the consequences of it. But they're saying, we should all be slaves. We're accepting it. Joseph says, I don't want that. I just want him. How do you reason that? No, no, that, that you, you can have all 11 of us. But if you just want him, we go to war with you. What's going on over here? So the Rebbe says something incredible here. The Rebbe tells us that is precisely the point. In a footnote that the Rebbe penned, which is found in the 20th volume of Lukut Asichas, in the Sichan Parshas Vayigash, the Rebbe asks these very questions. Yosef is simply doing what Binyamin, but Yehuda had suggested. It was the brothers themselves who together suggested we all be slaves. It was Yehuda who re-emphasized, we are all your slaves. What were they thinking? How did they plan to fight Yosef on his desire to detain Binyamin when after all, they knew, they knew in the end that they were ready to be slaves themselves and they even said that. Well, if you accepted that upon yourself, how do you fight it later? Yosef could have said, hey, you yourself gave this idea. I'm the nice guy. The Rebbe says this. Initially, the way Yehuda viewed the entire scenario was such. Clearly from heaven, it has been ruled that we should be slaves. Yehuda actually looked at this as more than simply the circumstances that would become the punitive measure for the way they treated Yosef. Yehuda reasoned to himself, and the brothers all thought, that after all, as per Genesis 15, verse 13 onward, what is known as the bris ben Absalom, in verse 13 it says, Ki ger zaracha Your progeny will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. And that's what happened. When Yaakov comes down into Mitzrayim, it is the ultimate fulfillment of Brit Ben Absarim. They weren't wrong. That's exactly what's going on here. And so Yehuda reasoned, We can't change this. This was a decree that comes from Hashem. And if it's a decree that comes from Hashem, we must accept it. Ach, there's a but. When he saw that Yosef is so obstinate, and he says, no, 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 you all go home. He's the slave. 
Rak binyamin levadai. It is binyamin alone who remained a slave with me. They understood. Aha. So it's not the fulfillment of Brit bin Absarim. And I might humbly add, using the Bechaya, it's not the punishment that's meted out because Binyamin never did anything wrong. If it's not the punishment, if it's not what Hashem has ordained for us, oh, in that case, then we need to oppose this with every fiber of our being. My dear friends, there are sometimes circumstances and situations that are imposed upon us and we have no choice. If that's what Hashem wants, that's what Hashem wants. But if it isn't exactly like that, it's not so clear that that's what Hashem wants. It's clear we're in a pickle. It's clear we've got problems. But it's not clear that Hashem wants us to simply accept the situation. Then what must we do? then we must fight it with every fiber of our being to the point of Mesiris Nefesh. And here's a compelling little COVID circumstances thought. Many of the realities that we are facing right now are beyond our control. And there's simply nothing we can do about it. But some of the things we can find ways to get around. When our shoals were closed, they were closed. When they were open, people said, I'm afraid. I don't want to put myself in harm's way. Although sadly, they seemed not to think about that when they went shopping or went to their places of work. I'm actually trying to make a point. If Hashem closes our shoals, that's the way we must view it. Hashem didn't want us there. Can we still say the same thing when there's possibility to be there? So now in Ontario, they're closing us down again, but not fully. We can have up to 10. A wink from heaven. Who told the premier what a minion looks like? How'd they know about 10? If you have separate entrances and separate washrooms, Maybe you can have more than one minion in the same building because they are like different domiciles. No, get cracking. Do what has to be done. Figure it out. What must be accepted, must be accepted. What comes with difficulty, what requires mesidas nefesh, but what can be opposed or pushed back on, things we can do, we must do. The Torah expects of all of us to emulate the behavior of Yehuda. If it's the will of Hashem, it's the will of Hashem. And you must submit and accept, accept it. But when it's not the will of Hashem, and you can know that circumstantially, you can know that there is something that can be done, then by golly, something must be done. And just as Yehuda did whatever he could under the circumstances as he believed them to be and ultimately saw success, you and I, Be'ezer Hashem Yisbarach, by doing all that we can do and beyond, will also see success. I conclude with a blessing and a prayer. A bracha that Hashem should give us the strength and that we should find the courage 
to discover the abilities that we innately have. That we should utilize and marshal that potential. We should do what we can be Mesiras Nefesh. And as a result of that, we should be Zeicher to a total turnaround, an absolute transformation of reality as we know it. In the time of Yehuda, it came with Yosef's cry, Ani Yosef. In our time, may it come with the cry, Mashiach is here to take us home. Amen. Thank you for joining today. If you're still watching and you aren't yet subscribed, please just do it. And don't forget to enable notifications. Thank you. Thank mm-hmm. you.